Morning. Morning. Lovely to see you. My name is Jason. I'm senior pastor here with my wife, Beth. Well, I know you're my wife. I was looking. I haven't got my glasses on somewhere there. My wife, Bev. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Continuing our series about people who encountered Jesus. Um, and um, I just want to say, I mean, I hope you were listening to those announcements. And those of you who are online, I hope you catch that and catch it up later. Um, you, I taught last Sunday about prayer. And if you missed that, please go and listen to it. Lots, so many people told me how they were impacted by it. And are now excited about prayer and opportunities for prayer. Um, we pray 9.45 before the service. Wonderful things happening there. Um, and our prayer room reopening is at the Dolphin. Many of you are new, here are new to the church and won't know that the Dolphin was an old pub, derelict pub that we were praying in. And it, it was an answer to prayer for prayer. And in there before COVID, there's a, there's a room that we turned into a 24-hour prayer room. And we made it freely available to the church and local churches. And lots of churches were praying in there as well as us. And after COVID, now it's reopened. So it's a very special place and pray that you would use it and go there. Um, and um, the Friendship Festival, we have 24 hours of prayer. And I said last Sunday, if you were moved to pray and you've never taken part in a prayer meeting, now might be the time to do that. Um, but I, I just, just want to for a moment reflect on how things, where we got to, all that amazing stuff that you're hearing. Um, I was praying early last year, beginning of last year, and felt the Lord speak to me about Hong Kongers. I've been there a few times. And I felt the Lord say, Jason, even if no one in your church does something, you need to reach out. And I reached out and God answered prayers and I helped network our local churches. Um, and you might not realize it, but our church, because of what we did last year, has become a model for churches in the UK. The Friendship Festival that we did last September is now being duplicated around the country. Five times. Five times. Yeah. There you go. Um, you know, hearing how Hannah is able to press in and do schools projects that will turn into something being multiplied in schools. How does that happen? Yes, I, if I hadn't stood up here after praying, nothing would happen. All begins with prayer. And I said, Lord, how? And he said, it's fine. And I prayed. And it all came together. And Jack was an answer to prayer. And Hannah on maternity leave was an answer to prayer. And Lucy here was an answer to prayer. But you know, another thing, it was the giving of our church members that seeded this. You hear about the grant and think, oh, that's exciting. But there was an enormous amount of money that our trustees underwrote to give away because they believed in the vision for this and just gave that away. We were able to do that. It was giving as a church that made this possible that's now caught fire and being multiplied. So really, church, God is doing something. And if you want to take part, it is really simple. Come and pray. Sign up online. And turn up and have fun. That's all you have to do. We made it so simple. Turn up and have fun. And I can't think of anything more fun for you, that, because people do this. They will wander around and go, who made this? Why is it all free? And when they find out it's churches that did it, 
You know, we have the opportunity to transform our community that people have such cliches about Christians. Um, the dolphin itself, we had our local mayors and councillors visit, and they walk in. By the way, they sense God's presence, and they don't know how to explain it. They go, it's very peaceful in here. <laughs> but the question I'm often asked is, who paid for all of this? And I'll say, our church members did, through prayer and through their giving. So brothers and sisters, at this moment, this time in history, God is lighting fires. Take part. Put the 18th, whatever you're doing on the 18th, it is not as fun as turning up and getting your face painted. Yeah? And seeing a few thousand people turn up and seeing it, it was on national news last year. See it on the news this year. See what God does. Let's change our community together. Um, so we're doing our series. Um, where's the big clock that I can read? That's far too small. There's like a clock about that big. <laughs> I can't possibly read that. Can anyone read that? What is that? Ah, that's better. Yay. <laughs> I was like, what? For Pete's sake. Right. That's a bit more like it. Even, and it's a bit blurry, but I can... Thank you. So it's 9.43, isn't it? No, it's 10.56. There we go. So we're doing our series on Pivot. And the idea of this, the idea of this series... Uh, as the preaching team got together, was the belief that God wanted to sh us to share stories of people who encountered Jesus and that so much momentum in their lives, negativity and awfulness, it just in a moment is turned around and used to move them in the opposite direction into the kingdom and what he has for them. Um, and uh, if you've been enjoying this series, you can catch them all up online and we've got a few more to go before we finish and start another, a new summer series. Um, so I got an introduction for you today and then five very short things to share with you. And we're looking today at the story of the rich young ruler. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. And we are reading from uh, verses 17 to uh, a bit further on. <laughs> Can't find it, so... That's quite good, isn't it? Somewhere else. We'll stop at some point. Um, so the, the bit that precedes this in Mark is Jesus has talked about the little children. It's a very well-known verse, and Jesus talks about becoming like a child. But verse 16, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Um, Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to one another, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. And truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one 
who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. This is one of my favorite passages I have been. I wasn't supposed to be here today. I'm covering one of the preaching team. Um, and, um, and this is one of those stories that if sometimes when you read the Bible, you get to a story and it just is so rich and so, so rich and so deep. And I've been coming back to it again and again and again for two years, rereading this and praying through it. So exciting to share this with you and felt it fit this series. Now, there are so many things in this encounter um, of this young man with Jesus, as there always is with anyone who encounters Jesus. You know, step one is, you know, any, and this guy's probably been watching. You think he would have learnt. When you approach Jesus, beware. He probably already knows exactly what you're going to ask him. <laughs> it's like, uh, beware. Um, and um, there are so many, and I'm going to focus on a few things. This passage is often reduced to just issues of monetary wealth and richness. And that does it a disservice. We miss the point of this passage. It is not about wealth, and principally, and I'll show you that. Um, in fact, if I was to ask any of you here and bring you up on stage and say, are you rich? How many of you would say, yes. I bet if I got demographically some of the wealthiest of you and put you here on the stage, you'd probably self-deprecate and say, oh, no, I'm not rich. Um, it's not nice to be singled out to be rich, is it? Who's rich? Someone who earns more than me, basically, is rich, isn't it? So let's park that. But this man does have wealth compared to the people that he's with. That is true in this story. But the thing to notice in this story is he is a good man. He is successful. There's so many things in this passage, the way it's constructed and the original language that's used, that shows us it's very hard. This is the Jewish context. Jesus is, you know this sort of, any of you remember computer modems? You maybe used to dial up and the noise. Any of you old enough to remember those? That's called a handshake and an interface, yeah? And, and to connect and to start talking. You see this with Jesus a lot, especially in a Jewish context. The sentence, you know that bit where Jesus starts to talk about the commandments and everything else? Firstly, Jesus is reading this guy's mail. And secondly, they're doing a sort of religious handshake. And we can miss that. And they're booting up and getting connected to one another. And... In this story, there is enough in the text that would be a study on its own that he, the fact that Jesus is giving him attention, the way that Jesus talks to him, the way that Jesus asks him questions shows that Jesus as a rabbi and a teacher is receiving this man in front of other people to have a very important conversation that he values him. This is what is taking place. And this good, young, successful man has realized something. There is something he cannot by. He's been watching Jesus, listening to Jesus. He throws himself, he's probably a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious order, uh, a very good, righteous. All the Pharisees were not bad, by the way. Some of the, that's another thing to get away, the stereotypes. There were many Pharisees who followed Jesus and believed in him. And this man, a leader in the community, puts himself on his knees in front of Jesus. That's an act of humili humiliation that made everybody, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Have you noticed that in these encounters? Are you watching the stories? Anyone remember Zacchaeus? There's just these breathtaking moments. You're like, 
everyone's like, what's going to happen now? And this wonderful young man says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's, an in, there's a massive contradiction inherent in that statement. See, if you are an in- inheritor of something, you don't need to do anything, yeah? If you're going to inherit something from your parents, you inherit it because of one reason alone. You were born. <laughs> you're related. And this man can buy anything. But he realizes he's seen something with Jesus and what Jesus is talking about. And he's religiously trained, financially trained, and he's like, whatever this man is talking about, I cannot buy anywhere. No amount of money. In fact, Jesus talks about this. You can't buy this. What must I do, he says. And really, that's the five things I now want to share with you is is the opening up of that for this young man and his encounter. And to show that if we want to inherit eternal life, the things that Jesus talks about and says he'll bring, we're going to touch on those as I go through this. What do we do that means we might become inheritors? So, firstly, what we will not give. Again, this story is shocking for Jewish people. This is a good man, good religious man, wealthy man, and in a Jewish context, to follow the law, to be virtuous and good, and to be wealthy was a good thing. He would have been a pillar of the community. People would have stopped and respected him. They would have said, God is with this man because he prospers. So Jesus in this story is like, basically, I don't care about any of that. This was utterly shocking for the listeners. Jesus Jesus also doesn't do something that many Christian leaders might be prone to. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I've got these 12 guys. I'm trying to put a board together. I could really do with a cheap COO. Um, Are you any good with technology? Oh, no, could you pay for that? See, this, Jesus does not put a board together and say to this man, how do I use your sweet spot, your skills, and how do I take your finance? I've got a few things I could really do with your funding on. Not that any of those things are bad. Jesus is concerned with one thing alone for this young man. The thing this young man is absolutely desperate for. He has seen something about Jesus and... Something in here wants it. And Jesus goes right to that and says, let's deal with that. All the other stuff will take care of itself. And what Jesus looks at is what this man will not give. The young man says, what must I give? And Jesus, because he's Jesus, because the Holy Spirit will show him, looks through this young man and he's like, it and he goes let's go there then you've come here let's make the most of this let me go to that place with you and he says one thing you lack the language here fascinating. Jesus doesn't say in the language there is one thing you must do to earn something Jesus says you rich young good man you lack something do you find that interesting Everybody else sees wealth. Jesus says, I see your lack. 
I see what you lack. It's your lack that's brought you to your knees. It's your lack that's made you interested in me. Not your wealth. It's, it's because of what you lack, and it's your poverty. And that's where Jesus wants to address this wonderful young man. And then I write down a question here. What will we not give for Jesus? Where do we lack? I, I find it amazing for myself. I've, t- I've talked to myself. Do you, does it, anyone else ever talk to themselves? A lot of you are nodding. Yeah. I've, sometimes I'll talk out loud and devil will say, what are you doing? I'm talking to myself. And Why do you do that? And I'll say, well, it's the only way to have a sensible conversation. <laughs> Just, oh. Just one of the things I inherited from my father. He used to talk to himself out loud. I do remember. Um, and, and in my self-talk, I found myself, I found myself in moments of places I will not go with the Lord. And I'm going to be honest. Have any of you got parts of your life where you're like, la 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 la, can't hear you, Lord? Anyone else put, ever put their la la ears in? Come on, let's be honest. Thank you. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, maybe later, another time. <laughs> I'm breaking up, Lord. Can't you know? Can't can't hear you. Um, I do that. Where will we not go? And my self-talk over the years. Sometimes I say to myself, Jason, you'll believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, and one day He will rise you from the dead and take you into eternity. But you won't trust Him with this. Isn't that absurd? If I can't trust Him with this. Why am I going to expect to experience? Cross my fingers and close my eyes when the lights go out. Let's hope it all works out in the end. So one of the things that Jesus talks about is inherent to these encounters with him. The eternal life that he comes to bring is an experience now in its fullest. Not an insurance policy for when we die and hope it works out. So what wouldn't you do? And I'm just going to mention a story here because it was one of the most challenging ones. I sat down and I went, Lord, what story could I share about what I wouldn't give? And I've shared this before many of you are new. I sat down with John Wright, who's now our national director of Vineyard Churches, and we were out on our motorbikes, went round Silverstone. He went round a lot faster than me. He's about that big. I'm about that big. And we had a lovely time out, and we're sitting around 12 years ago. And I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to him, asking about ministry and church and life. I thought, I'll make the most of this. He's a wonderful leader. And I said, where is... And we got down to talking about our relationship with Jesus. And I said, where's... Where's the Lord challenge you? And he talked about giving. And then he told me how he gives and the way that he gives. And I tell you what, the fear that welled up inside me, and I thought, I literally said to myself, I could never give like that. Ever. Now, I like uh, up to that point, would be proud that I'd always given 10% of my income and grown as a Christian. But our national director, without he wouldn't share this, but, and I'm not going to embarrass him and tell you some of the stories that he told me. I just thought, oh my goodness. You really believe in the mission of your church such that you give in that way. I could never do that. And do you know what? It haunted me. Have any of you ever had God get hold of you on something and it just won't go away? And it stayed there. And I thought, what is it? So eventually I made that mistake of talking to the Lord about it. A bit like this young guy. Jesus, what must I do to inherit more of eternal life? He's like, well, I want to talk about that thing that you're a bit, why are you scared? And I'd have an honest conversation with the Lord. 
growing up, nearly being made homeless, working 12 jobs to get through university. You know, at one level able to give, but another level, a fear about giving that terrified me. And then as the Lord started to speak to me, a few things came up about 10 years ago. And the Lord really set me free in that area. And I thought, and I've shared with John, I said, John, you know some of your stories, can I tell you some of mine? Found freedom there. Because underneath it, what I really believed is, if I give in the way that God might invite me to, he won't provide for me. Isn't that the most stupid sentence to say out loud? If I believe that the, 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 the Lord of creation who died and rose from the dead invites me to give something of myself, somehow I will be less and have less and be in danger. It's hardwired into us. What's your one thing? Oh, I spent a lot more time on that one. Let's get through the other four. Why give everything? Well, I was at Becky Skinner's wedding yesterday. Becky's on staff in our church. The rain stopped. The sun came out. Thank you, Lord. And, and I noticed again how naturally giving flows around love and family. There were lots of, lots of gratitude at that wedding for Becky's father. <laughs> Investing in the wedding. And nobody went, what a stupid thing to do. What's the return on investment on this? Yeah? None of us question that. When it comes to love, giving flows. Weddings is one of those places that you see that. Friends and family, giving naturally flows. Giving at every level, time, energy, and money. And none of us would challenge anyone that gave everything out of love for their children or their spouse. And I, I, I do like to remember when I first met my wife, I used to give far more as a percentage of my money to her than I do now. Well, <laughs> you know, I went and worked in, some of you might remember a place where you used, when you took photos, you used to have to send this thing off called a camera film and it would get developed and then you got these things printed. Do any of you remember those days? Yeah. Well, as a student, one of the jobs I did was I worked 12-hour shifts for six days in a row in a place with these machines, and my job was to walk around in, in flipping work overalls, and every time a machine broke down because they would jam, is come over and help get rid of it. I, remember, I still remember the stink of the chemicals. It was, it was horrendous. And I don't know, I think that week, I, it was amazing, I, I think I took home 75 pounds for working 60, 60 hours. And do you know what I did with every single penny? I went out, and I found out the woman I was courting, um, shows how old I am, I use the word courting, um, she liked Baileys. Well, that was 15 quid, gone right there. But I got her the jumbo bottle at 20 quid or something. Then flowers, and then a watch. Do you remember that? And a meal. Man, what you could get for 75 quid. <laughs> Pretty good, wasn't it? It was amazing. Uh, it, was, it was different days. Every penny, gone. You know, not one person queried that extravagant giving. Why wouldn't I give? But somehow when it comes to God and our relationship with him, and, and the key to this story is to understand this is the register that Jesus works at. It's the way he sees us and what he does for us. And it's the invitation that he makes to us to experience him in that way, fundamentally. Maybe you've never experienced that. Jesus looks at this man, and it's one of the most beautiful passages. It makes me, moves me to tears when I see it. Jesus looked at this man, and 
assessed him for leadership potential in the future? What does it say? Jesus loved him. First time I, I mean, I've seen that for years, but first time I really saw that a couple of years ago reading this, I thought, how did they know? Did Jesus say afterwards, oh, by the way, that strange look on my face, that was love. No, I think it was this. I think the disciples who had seen Jesus look at them and love them and say, oh, you, come on, follow me. I think they were all together and they're like, oh, he's giving him the look. We know what's coming next. And actually in this story, Jesus invites this man to become a disciple and follow him. Jesus looked at him and loved him and he's like, Father, I've got another one. You know, it's just a small pool of people that Jesus picked from in the middle of nowhere. Many of them related to each other. And we're going to get to the end of this story. This man was almost certainly related to some of the disciples. They would have known him. And Jesus gives him the look. Jesus is still calling disciples and he's like, oh, here's another one. Father? And the father says, ask him this. One thing you lack, sell all that stuff and come and follow me. We give everything for love. Any of you know Meatloaf? He died recently, didn't he? Like a bat out of hell. One of the greatest songs ever and one of the best-selling songs ever. He also wrote another song. I'll do anything for love, but... It's called a tautology. It's a sentence that makes no sense. I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. I've always loved that song. Jesus, I'll do anything for you. How many times do we sing that in a song? But not these five things today, this week, this month. That's what's going on with this man. Jesus, I'll do anything for you. What must I do? I'll do anything but don't ask me that question. I, I meet with some guys in the church, a few groups, and we, we meet and pray and do discipleship and open up our lives to one another. And one of my favorite questions, when we ask each other, and it gets more fun, we start to each other really difficult questions. My favorite question is, what's the question you don't want us to ask you? <laughs> About your faith and your relationship with God, yeah? If we got you all up and you told us the thing you don't want to be asked. Jesus goes. He goes there because he loves him. And that's a contrast. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. It's a, it's a stark contrast to this, one of my favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Those of you who've been around know I love that song. Go through all the verses that talk about who Jesus is and his love for us and everything that he's done. And the last verse is, were the whole re- in response to that love, were the whole realm of nature mine that we're an offering far too small, that love of Jesus and the Father and the Son, the Son and the Spirit, so amazing, so divine. Any of you remember the next word? I always get you to quote it. How can love demand anything? Well, I gave the example of my wife. My love demanded that response. Or it wasn't love. The demands of love. Oh, my life, my all. Um, then there's the burden of what we won't give. Last two things. The burden of what we won't give and some pivots take time is what we're going to finish on. So this good man, we often have reasons why we won't give our one thing. If Jesus was to ask us, that would be an inch. I'll tell you what, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you're not in a small group, go and join one. And as a follow-up to this talk, when you meet in your small group, share with one another, really share, what's the one thing you won't give? And why? That would be a fun small group to go to, wouldn't it? 
I tell you what, you, will, you and our church, if we do this, will see more growth than we've ever seen. Does anyone believe that? Got some faith there, Lucy, haven't you? It's kind of scary, isn't it? To go to that place with the Lord, because that's where he wants to go with us. And he doesn't go there to shame us or embarrass us. He goes there because he wants to release us. And he wants us to be filled with his love. And he wants us to inherit the inheritance that is due to us that we have yet to receive because we have not become fully sons or daughters of the Father. So why don't we? Well, I've already touched on it. It's because of fear and lack. It's, it's ironic that we, because of something we lack about God that we won't give things to him. Now, in this story, and it's also mentioned in three, so we talked about how selective the gospel writers are, and it's very important why they choose things, either on their own and when the others don't, or sometimes when something crops up. This story crops up three times, that's shared from different perspectives and some bits remembered um, differently or, or drawn attention to. But this camel entering the eye of a needle, in, in the Aramaic, the language camel here also can mean not, it's the, the image here in, in this Jewish context would have been, it's like trying to put a piece of rope through a needle. Can you imagine trying to do that? Uh, or not? It, it just won't fit through. It won't go. Yeah? I mean, I was going to say, I know this well, but I don't, because I don't regularly stitch things. But at some point in my life, I have tried to thread something. But a needle. But also, some of you have been Christians a while will know that there was a gate um, called the needle in Jerusalem. And it was a small gate, a side gate. And it was very difficult for camels to get through. And this is being alluded to in the imagery. It's easier for a camel, fully laden, to squeeze through the narrowest gate to the city than someone who's rich. There's this, Jesus is a master of imagery. And the way that the camel would get through the eye of the needle, they would have to unload it, squeeze the camel through, and then reload the camel. Stay with that image. The reason we won't give up something is because of a fear of lack. Because of the fear that if I give this up, I won't have enough. It's ironic, isn't it? This man who has more money than all of his friends doesn't want to give up his money because he's obviously worried he hasn't got enough. Isn't it easier to spot that in other people than ourselves? I have noticed how the busiest people in life, Christians, are absolutely terrified of giving their time away to Jesus because they fear they won't have enough. Just spot the irony. What Jesus is doing with this young man and with this parable is saying, you are a camel and you are so burdened with things. Again, does this sound familiar to some of the other things that Jesus says? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is always about divesting and removing and taking away. Let me say it this way. What you and I will not give is likely the greatest burden that we carry. And it stops us receiving our inheritance. Did you catch that? Whatever you won't say yes to Jesus for is likely because of a burden that you carry and a fear about it. 
And the fear is if I give up this, I'll have even less. And again, that language with Jesus, he says, you lack this one thing. You rich man, you lack something. And the doorway to it is take this burden off you. Take off the burden. And he sees, bear with me here. I've really wanted to do a whole series on this. Do you remember the passage that was just before this? I, read, I mentioned it at the start. What was it? Jesus and the children. Do you remember? And children crops up in this young man's story, doesn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've done everything. I've been good. I've kept all the rules. I've given away my money as I'm supposed to. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. See, that young man has been hearing the stories about becoming a children again. And I think Jesus in his love looks right through this young man's life and he says, oh my goodness, what a burden. You grew up in a home where you were strive to be successful, to be religiously perfect, to be financially prosperous. And underneath that, I see the little boy who wants to know that God loves him and that I love you. Do you see that in the story now? It's also right at the end. When Jesus talks to the disciple, did you see the word he uses when he addresses them? He turns to the disciples and he says, children, any of you have given up anything for me? It's there. Children, children, this young man is revealed as the child that he is. And you and I, many of the burdens that we carry and the things that we do in life have come with us through our childhood into adolescence. So Jesus gives this man this wonderful look. He loves him. He speaks to his heart and he says, no thank you. And he walks away. And we're told that he's sad. He walks away. And by the way, on this last, the end of this point here, before my last bit, the disciples are just as bad as this young man. Do you notice the state they get in? Did you notice it in the story? <gasps> what chance have we got? Simon Peter, we've given up everything for you. Yeah? Well, the disciples are revealed in this moment. The disciples really didn't have a clue. They had had an encounter with Jesus and they loved him, but they really didn't know who he was. And one of the things still going on with the disciples, we see it in the gospel stories. Again, if you have time, go and look at, go and read the gospels. It's like, who's going to be the greatest out of us as disciples? When Jesus comes in his kingdom, who's going to be, who's going to inherit? Oh, I'm going to be in charge and you'll be in charge. And well, the belief was, yeah, we've given up loads, but the payback's coming. And the payback that's coming is money and authority, and politics, and power. The disciples are revealed here to have not a clue about what Jesus' real kingdom is and his purposes. And they're terrified that they have been making these investments and they're not going to get their payback. I was mulling over today. I've been a Christian long enough and seem to have reached that stage of life where we bump into many friends or talk about friends, you know, we go down to London School of Theology, look at a photo of us from 1867 or whenever it was. Um, it's not that long ago. Anyway, it's in colour, so it's up there. And we go through it, and you can go, and it's so sad every year we go back, and you look at it and go, what happened to that person? Not even a Christian anymore. But they came here to train, to take the world for Jesus. Just person after person after person. In vineyard churches, we've been around since we were 19. We can list the people who, go, who were senior pastors who aren't even Christians anymore or an atheist. How does that happen? 
And I think it happens because something happens in life. We get to a place where we stop engaging with Jesus and we let the lack build up and our disappointments in life. It was a, someone prayed in the prayer room this morning about disappointment without knowing this was on my. And we so get to that place where we expect God and Jesus to give us something and he's let us down. And we are back in the place that this rich young man was in the disciples. Did you notice the promises that Jesus makes at the end of the story? Anyone who's given up anything for me will inherit more in this life. Jesus says, this life, you're going to get blessed. Did you notice that? But he also promised something else, and it's the bit that most of us do not like to claim. Which bit was it? What word was it? Jesus goes, it's great. You give up everything, I'm going to give you loads more. And by the way, I guarantee you, you'll be persecuted. I'm not sure I want that, Lord. What's persecution? Again, whole topic. But one of the ways is by daring to live as if Jesus was as important as everything else in life and give our lives away from him. The people around us and the systems around us do not like that and will fight against it because our world is bent on self-protection and lack and fear. That's where persecution comes from. So lastly, best till last, some pivots take time. Are you ready for this? All still with me? Cool. But this is not the end of the story. The rich young man sat, leaves. Jesus turns to the disciples. Children! Blah. What, happens to the, what happens to the young man? Walks off into the sunset. If they make a movie of this. By the way, the TV series The Chosen, I really hope they do this story. And this guy, Jesus is going to look at him and love him and he's going to get up and he's going to go away. But it's not the end of the story. So I told you the disciples want their payback. The disciples make their pivot. And if you've noticed, when we went through the Gospel of John and in some of the other encounters, the disciples, even when Jesus has died and risen from the dead, still don't get who he is. And it's afterwards, and it's Pentecost, when the disciples pivot, and they become the people that Jesus invited them to be. And they make their turn. Their pivot comes later. This last point is this. In a lot of these encounters, we see people meet Jesus and they're transformed. Some of you, some of us, think, I missed it. I walked away. I didn't make the pivot. It's too late. And the story is, it's never too late to pivot. Some people pivot around an experience of Jesus when they were younger and they meet him when they're much, much older. Some people walk away from Jesus and come back to him. Some people deny something that Jesus called them to for 10, 20, 30 years and then finally surrender and go, all right, Lord, pivots can take a long time. And that's the message I want you to take from today. Some pivots take time. Now, see if you can bear with me with this, the young man. This will be worth it. Commentaries and the early church seem to believe that this young man turns up again. And I need to do this carefully with you, and you, you could, I can point you to stuff afterwards. Any of you heard of Barnabas in the New Testament? Any of you know who Barnabas was? Barnabas was Joseph of Arimathea. There's strong evidence in Scripture to believe that Joseph of Arimathea, the guy that donated his tomb to Jesus, member of the Sanhedrin, is also Joseph the Levite, who becomes, his nickname's Barnabas. That's most, almost certainly the same Joseph. You're with me there. 
And he's mentioned in Acts 4, verse 36, Joseph the Levite actually becomes Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is also, we know from Scripture, a brother of a Mary. And we know that the Mary is the mother of John Mark. And have you heard of John Mark? Not John Mark Comer, the author, <laughs> but John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Yeah? And again, you've got to go to Colossians 4 and Acts 12. In other words, that Barnabas was a cousin of John Mark, the author of the Gospel. And Barnabas, Joseph of Arimathea, has got a sister called Mary. Now, there are lots of Marys in the New Testament, aren't there? Mary, the mother of Jesus, yeah? Can you remember them all? Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Cleopas, Mary of Bethany, lots of Marys. So, you follow me backwards. Barnabas, Joseph of Arimathea, you see where I'm going with this. Some commentators and many people in the early church believed that the Mary, who is the sister of Joseph of Arimathea, is the Mary and Martha. And in Mary and Martha, they had a brother. And who was that brother? Lazarus. Lazarus was a nickname. It wasn't a real name. It was one who had been blessed by God. Lazarus was almost certainly a religious ruler, maybe a member of the Sanhedrin. And because he's raised from the dead, people want to not only kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus because of his position and title. So there was a possibility that Lazarus was Joseph of Arimathea, was Barnabas. Now you see where this is going. Now this bit is harder, and this is where it goes from probabilities to a maybe, but I like it. What's one of the things we know about Jesus and Lazarus? He loved him. He wept. And there is the possibility that Lazarus is the rich young man. Might not be trivial, but it's possible. And it fits so wonderfully. So the Lazarus, who is raised from the dead, walks out of a tomb. If that Lazarus is Joseph of Arimathea, that is the tomb that he donates for Jesus to be buried in. And the reason I find this so wonderful is, is for this reason in the scripture. You know when Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God everything is possible. Do you notice that? We can read that as some sort of philosophical statement. You know, well, with man this is impossible, but with God everything's possible. It's that kind of statement, you know, God can make a round square. You ever heard that? It's just like, so what? But if we read this relationally, because this is what Jesus is doing in this story, he is looking at this man and he loves him and he's having this conversation with the disciples and he says, you are the same trajectory as him. You lack this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I think the reason Jesus let this man walk away was because he saw his future. And when he's saying to the disciples, yeah, who in this world gives up the most important things to follow me and have me as their love? With people, that's impossible. 
But I imagine Jesus looking over and watching the young ruler walk away and going, but with God, watch this. Watch what happens. So you remember, brothers and sisters, some pivots take time. Let's worship. Let's have the worship team back.